Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome, readers. It's lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, The Roots Editor-in-Chief, and here with me is the Managing Editor of The Glow-Up, Maisha Kai. Hey, y'all. Maisha, today we're sharing something just a little bit different here on It's Lit. Firstly, we're talking to not one, but two remarkable women who have recently collaborated on a project that isn't so much a book or a novel, as it is a gorgeous hardcover mixed-media zine. It's called Black Futures, and it's a project that was born out of the brilliance of Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. Kimberly is an independent curator and activist who has been the social media manager at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, conducted Instagram takeovers at the White House, and also authored her debut book called This Is What I Know About Art, which I know you covered earlier this year. Kimberly is also a member of the 2020 class of the Route 100. Jenna, a member of Brooklyn Magazine's 2016 Brooklyn 100, is staff writer for New York Times Magazine and co-host of the podcast Still Processing. Kimberly and Jenna's Black Features comes out in just a few days on December 1st, just in time for the holiday season, and we're excited to talk with them about this rich project. You know, this book is really something to behold. I mean, just the amount of essays Art, poem, photographs from so many brilliant artists and writers is astounding in and of itself. I mean, it really speaks to the curatorial spirit, I think, of both of these amazing authors. And I, I gotta say, I don't think this book could come at a better time, you know, when we have really been forced to examine what our future is. And I, I just was overwhelmed by it. How did you, how did you respond to this book, Danielle? excited about the prospect of zines. Remember zines? <laughs> I like, you know, like I loved it to the zines. You know, the fact that it was such a huge thing in like the 90s and the fact they're bringing it back and making it remixed and relevant for an audience today is so exciting. I used to make my own little zines that I just made for myself for fun as a kid because that's how <laughs> big of a nerd I was. Well, you know, we love a we love a black nerd. And you know, this is an encyclopedic kind of tome, so it does you're right, it definitely takes that concept and elevates it. I just love it. Incredible. And with that, let's get to the interview. Let's do it. Well, hello, Jenna and Kimberly. Welcome to Slit. <laughs> Hello from the virtual comforts of our homes. Yes, deep in our houses where we all hide from diseases. Yes. Such an enthusiastic welcome. I love it. (laughs) We love a morning. So So we're thrilled to have you with us today. Likewise. Uh, We are honored. We're honored. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> so this is the first time we've had an equal host to guest ratio. That's true. And Maisha and I are so curious about the conception and creation of Black futures. But first, since It's Lit is a podcast about Black books and authors and writers and journalists and all the people who love the written word, we start each episode by asking our guests to name at least one book that blew their mind, was life-changing, life-altering. Let's start with you, Jenna. Do you have a particular book in mind? <laughs> um, you know, as you were talking, I, I, my mind went to Memorial by Brian Washington, which just came out this year. And it was the one book I read this year that didn't stress me out. It was actually just like a warm bath to slip into. And it's just, it's this really incredible book about a young black queer man and this relationship that's unraveling. But while it's unraveling, other new relationships are forming. And he forms this really interesting relationship with his soon to be ex partner's mother who just like flies in from Japan and moves into their house and the two of them start cooking together. And it's just one of the most beautiful like books about family and home. And then the descriptions of food are so good. So that's what just came to mind immediately. It was, it, it was like, I feel like it hasn't gotten talked about enough this year, but it was one of the best things I read. It's, it's definitely been on my list. And just so you know, I've bought it since we've been on this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> in this interview. Uh, so, oh, good. <laughs> Kimberly, how about you? I want to <laughs> say something more like niche. Like my brain's instinct is like, oh, who can I highlight that people don't know? But in in reality, it's Sula, Toni Morrison Sula. Yes. Because <laughs> there is something, I don't know what the word is, like spiritual that happens every time that I reread Sula in that there is always at least one other friend who is reading it at the same time. It has happened to me multiple times <laughs> where I check in with people or I look up in a friend, you know, RIP to riding the subway with friends. But like I look up and I run into a homegirl who also has Sula in her bag. And I just I feel like it's that little sprinkle of fairy dust that Tony left us with. And it and it just always has left yes. an imprint on me. I mm. never am reading Sula alone. And so Sula is absolutely a book that blows my mind. It's it's for sure a sister circle book. And and you probably heard me exclaim mm -hmm. because every time I'm asked that question, that is also my favorite. I can't even say Aww. I don't even know favorite is the word. It's it's you're right. It's spiritual and it's always the first thing that my mind goes to in terms of something that deep affected me so deeply and that I re return to mm. again and again. So I love that that was your answer. Kinship, I love it. It's powerful. <laughs> Amazing. So, Black Futures is unlike any book that we've featured on this show to date and dare say have even handled its weight <laughs> literally and figuratively. Yeah, it's got you a know, lot this of This is like theft. an awe-inspiring tome. It's like 500 pages, not including the acknowledgments <laughs> and credits. And it's an undertaking that clearly required a strong and cohesive partnership and joint mm. vision. Something we also rely on here at It's Lit. Mm. Jenna, we hear Black Futures was initially your concept. How did this idea originate for you and what inspired you to pursue Kimberly as your partner for this project? Mm, thank you for saying that the book is thick. That's like the Kirkus Review said like vivid, juicy, yes. thick. And it's just like my favorite description of like Thick Girls Club. It makes me so happy. Um, yeah, so I, 
Well, you know, it's interesting because Black Futures is fully of both of us. I think I reached out to Kimberly because I had been working as a tech reporter and wanted to do more. I wanted to do something more with arts and culture that centered Black people and Blackness in a way that wasn't entirely possible at my job at the Times. And I love having side projects. So I reached out to Kimberly because I was a huge fan of her Tumblr, Black Contemporary Art. And I just felt like... I also love being a journalist because it gives you an excuse to reach out to people you admire and just to be like, hey, can we get a coffee? So it was just that vibe. (laughs) So I didn't really even have the idea for Black Futures. I just knew that there was something really profound happening in arts and culture that I wanted to spend more time thinking about and, and working on. And I thought Kimberly might be a really good intellectual partner for that. And so I reached out and... Originally, I thought, oh, maybe we'll just do something really ephemeral, short, one-off, like maybe create another Tumblr, create a zine. Maybe we'll try to do some... I think in the DM, it was like, maybe even an art show. Like, I had no idea what I was talking about. I really had no idea what I was talking about at all. And then Kimberly had this incredible insight, like, we should think about a book, you know? And I was like, whoa, yes. And so that was kind of the moment that Black Futures started to take shape. And I think even early on, we were calling it the Black Futures Project. Um, because we didn't know, you know, what it would be or how it would live. But that was sort of the beginning exchange that led to the, to the final product that you have now. And, and it really was like both of us kind of combing our purviews, bringing things to each other. Do you think this is interesting? Do you think this is interesting? And like looking for the overlap and also the parts where there was no overlap and teaching each other about the things we were interested in. So you've amassed an incredible amount of talent for this book, over a hundred creatives across genres, industries, mediums. Kimberly, as a well-known independent curator, can you explain to us how this particular curational process developed? Ooh, I love this question. I mean, I think that this is what happens when you have people who love the same things, but are approaching it from completely different vantage points. Because I think at every turn and corner, the ways that Jenna and I were uniquely viewing the world either through our travels or through our reading. Jenna's a voracious reader, which she also did mention. Like, Jenna is consistently, like, devouring 10 books at a time. Um, (laughs) And so there's this incredible research that both of us are doing as really curious people who are really connected in a variety of communities and really wanting to spread our arms as widely as we could. And then also coming in with an incredible amount of vulnerability. Because I think there's a certain point where we both kind of learned each other's taste level, but there's also still this like, there's always a chance that you might not like this. And so how can I most delicately and most thoughtfully introduce this thing and understand that the introduction is an act and gesture of love, whether it makes the book or not, it's something that's worth teasing through. And so there's this book that was created, and then there's this entire universe that exists around it. And I think that that's an important point to drive home too, because I think I can speak for both Jenna and I. We had this incredible anxiety of like, what if it's not enough? What if it's not this enough? Or this group is excluded or this is excluded. And we kept talking about the architecture and trying to really point to people who could maybe be representatives for groups of thought or schools of thoughts or directions. And so it's a really hearty mix of humility, vulnerability, and trust that I think makes anyone or or any editor a good editor or curator because it, it really comes from such a, like a deeply soul centered kind of space more than like an ego driven or nepotistic kind of journey. It's really 
I don't know. It felt like an excavation at every turn and, and, and corner. You know, I, I love that you put vulnerability in there because I think that that's one of those things that we don't focus on as much as we should. Uh, you know, I think we're always so busy trying to be strong and to kind of armor ourselves against a world that is not always intended for us. And, and you know, one of the things that's really kind of miraculous about this book to me is, you know, we're always saying, you know, that the Blackness is not a monolith, you know, that there's no one singular Black experience. And you've really put that here in front of us. And Kimberly, this is actually our second time speaking this year. So I initially interviewed you early this summer about your first book, which was with uh, Pocket Change Collective. This is what I know about art. And in that book, you recalled the extrajudicial killings of Eric Garner and Michael Brown in 2014. And you wrote, my community responded in full force, trying to make sense of it all through their creative collective work. My faith in the importance of art had never been more concrete. Now, obviously, when you wrote that book and began working on this one with Jenna four years ago, I believe, uh, you could not have known that we'd be living through an even more intensified moment of trauma and rage by the time Black Futures was published. How do each of you hope that this creative collective work helps us make sense of this moment? Oh, that's a great question. Wow. Hmm. I can say something. (laughs) You're pointing at me. You can also take your time. I mean, you know, we've got an editor. We'll be fine. Yeah, it's a podcast. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, though, right? Like, that's that's the thing of what it means. Like, I had um, a white journalist who I had a really good conversation with otherwise who was like, you know, how does it feel to drum up feelings when you're writing as opposed, like, with the assumption that, like, we're not constantly feeling all of these realities, you know? It's like, when I write, mm, it doesn't, mm-hmm, like, suspend, mm-hmm. you know, or, like, there's not this, like, I dump out how these realities impact me. It's always in the room. And in some ways, it helps me make sense of these things. But the weight is still there. You know, the dance and the choreography that we all do in our our relative existence as as Black people in this moment, it always comes with that weight. And I think that there's a strange misunderstanding that um, on, a, on a broad cultural level that we, like, pick it up and put it down. And so... I think both of us are only pausing because it's like, yeah, we all are feeling so much right now. And it is impossible mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. yeah, it's sometimes impossible to put words to how, how we're feeling and or how our, our contributions culturally might help others feel better. So I will say, I think one of the ways that I've been trying to parse through and make sense of what it means to make this book as an offering in this moment is that I think Black Futures as a text is really like a match, is really like a companion, is really like a delicious meal, is really like that gust of wind when you're waiting for something that reminds you that maybe you're in the right place. I think that it's impossible as a creator to like overstate its importance. Like I don't feel comfortable doing that, but I think as a person who could also receive this book, because Jen and I recently got our own copies, I think in a moment like this one, it's so incredible to be reminded of the breadth and wealth of Black culture, especially not mediated through, I think, the impulse of this moment where it's like, did you know Black people are great? You know, like, I think that there's this almost like (laughs) presumption of our mediocrity that's going on as well, or our unimportance, or there's this assumption that we've been waiting for approval that really irks me Mm. on a cellular Mm. level. 
And I'm really happy that both Jen and I have been working on this project for so long with the understanding of our excellence, of our connectivity, of the importance of the retention of our ideas and our connective fibers. And so it feels good to offer it in this moment to say like, oh no, we've been here. We've been valuable. We're acting within a tradition and continuum of other thinkers who have also felt this way in even more damning times. And what, you know? And there's so much more mm. that could be in the book, mm-hmm. but we only have mm. about 500 pages, you know? So that's, that's kind of how I feel a little bit. There could be a Black Futures too. Let's call up Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Let Chris know. Let Chris know. Oh, I love that answer. <laughs> um, lately, I've been having conversations with Black friends, mostly femme friends, who are both feeling this, you know, they're wondering, like, when is all this attention and, you know, prioritization of Black creativity and Black life going to end? Like, I had one friend recently be like, I have to sell my book right now because this might be the only time publishers are buying all these books from Black people. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Caitlin Greenidge um, wrote this that incredible essay in Harper's Bazaar about the, you know, the kind of duality, the, the twisted duality of being a first, you know, and like the way that it's this, it's like a very bittersweet celebration because it always illuminates this, this perception that there wasn't anyone good enough until now. But the truth is, it's just they didn't see us that way until now. And I think what comforts me about the book and what I'm hopeful is that, that it just exists outside of that. Like we were never waiting. We're not a first, right? This is not the first of its kind book. You know, we're, we're very much showing up in a tradition and a lineage of works. And we were never waiting for anyone to tell us, you know, this is your time. And, and I think too, getting, I was just looking up in our text messages because we got a note this morning from a contributor, Ayanna Johnson, who wrote that she's deeply honored to be part of this, that it's not just a book a cultural moment, a glorious punctuation mark. And I just keep thinking about that too and how a year of such muck, mm-hmm. it feels so good to send something out that holds Black people, helps us feel seen. And that's what I'm really holding on to right now, more than anything. It just feels, it feels like every time people get a gift, it's like the fifth day of Kwanzaa on <laughs> Christmas morning. You know, like they're just very happy. And like, that's enough for me. Jenna, in addition to writing for the New York Times Magazine, you're also a sound healer, Reiki (laughs) practitioner, herbalist, and community care worker oriented towards healing justice and liberation. I love it. (laughs) And your next project is reportedly a book about the body and dissociation. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're all in need of some healing right now. I mean, I can use yes. it. Um, particularly mm. those of us who feel our identity might make us especially vulnerable. What tools do you use or recommend for Black people who don't always feel our bodies are the safe spaces they should be? Mm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. This is a great question. I really appreciate you bringing in this into the room, too, because I think so oftentimes there's this narrative that we all should rest more and get more sleep. And, you know, I think that's been challenged, right, this summer, because when we, you know, we were still grieving and dealing with the aftermath of the death of Breonna Taylor. And it's like, 
she was doing that. You know, she was resting, she was sleeping. So I never, I, I'm really struggling with that because my number one thing that I would say and all of my herbalist friends say is get more rest, right? But even that is so fraught, right? We're not even safe in our own beds. So I think lately for me, I've been really focusing on just trying to find, this is going to sound strange, but I've been really working on embodied safety with like within my body. So like, when do I feel safe within my body? Like who are the people around me that I feel that around? It's obviously complicated because we're going through another wave of this global pandemic. And so the way we can be in community is very different, but I think I'm trying to figure out like, what does my support system look like? And what does it look like to, to say I'm struggling? What does it look like to say I need help? You know, and, and I think like sensitivity is, is a superpower, you know, like just being able to recognize I'm not well, or I'm not doing great and not having to sort of, I don't know, masquerade as fine when I'm not fine. Like I haven't been fine. I don't think I'll be fine for the foreseeable future. So I think just even recognizing that we feel vulnerable and just because most of the protests have, at least in New York City, have died down doesn't mean that the thing that uh, ignited them isn't still there. And just holding that space really sacred, you know? I mean, in a, in a, in a more practical way, I guess what I would also say is regular baths. If you're someone who likes bath, cause I think soaking in water is really medicinal and really healing and really clarifying and really cathartic. And then teas. Like I love to tell people to try just chamomile tea, which I had a bias against for a long time. And I don't know why. I think <laughs> I had a grandparent that was really into chamomile. So the smell for me is just it's like, not my favorite. It, it's not my favorite. Like fuck chamomile. I don't know. But now I'm very team chamomile <laughs> because it's very accessible and it's, I put it in my bath. I, I drink it every night to fall asleep. Like it's really, really helpful. Okay. And so I'm really leaning on those plant allies right now. All right. Now. All right. Now I'm sitting here like I could do it. I could, I don't love the tea, but I could do a chamomile <laughs> bath for some reason. I'm like, the smell isn't it. It's something about that. I'm like, I could do <laughs> it that. Too yeah, much. The, like it's the taste. Um, but, uh, back to black futures, you know, obviously a lot of us have time to take baths and things these days. Uh, you know, if we're not essential workers, uh, we have a lot more time on our hands, but you know, most of us are not going to read a 500 page book cover to cover, at least not in one sitting and, mm -hmm. and actually absorb it. Um, how do you two envision readers engaging with this book, this massive, amazing, rich book? Yeah, I would say in general, it's not, it's not designed to be read cover to cover. I think that you can get a lot from reading it cover to cover. And if you should so choose, be my guest. But I think for us, it's really more like a resource book. And so there's different themes, there's different chapters. And so if you're looking for recipes, for example, they're color-coded throughout the book. And so you can take, you know, Kia Damon's, recipe from her family that. and cook that for yourself or Pierre's recipe from family and cook for yourself or Adrian Marie Brown's recipe for self-love and, and do that for yourself as a ritual. But I would say in general, it's it's really designed to be picked up and put down. And I think that both Jen and I are kind of those types of readers where it's like, I don't know, Jen, if you have your copy near you, but like we're we're big post-it notes people. Like I write in the margins. Um, I definitely return to certain passages and rarely... Yeah, I just, I don't think that literacy has to be particularly linear. And this book doesn't require that in any way. Dig it. You know, um, one of the things that attracted me to this book was the fact that it was, you know, inspired 
like by, you know, zines. As a kid, I made my own little zine. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, what was it about? I, th- I think you're still was- making your own little zine every day with all of us. I am. I am. I'm still doing it. It's the root is your zine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I, I really, you know, can't say enough about the incredible range of like perspectives and ideas and imagery like you guys have amassed in Black Futures. You know, you got poems, photographs, essays, interviews, songs, social media. You even mentioned, you know, the instructions and the recipes, Yeah, you know, from folks, you know, some who are household names to people who are underground talents that you might not know. In scale, this is almost more like an encyclopedia than a zine. But why was it important for you to model this book in the zine spirit and legacy? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think zines often feel like time capsules. Like they're kind of, you know, they often focus on a single thing or they focus on like a theme and they're very much of that moment in which they were created. So even though the book evolved into a much bigger, it, it is actually really encyclopedic, which is which is really interesting to hear you say that because our designers, Marcos Key, who are so instrumental in making the book legible for as much information as in there like they really did a good job of like taking all the content and making it like you know easily to navigate but one of their design themes was in this encyclopedia motif like it almost did end up looking exactly like one but i do think i mean i do think that it's very much of right now and hopefully feels even though it we hope it feels timeless like we hope it kind of reaches backwards in time and forwards in time but we hope it does feel very much of something pulled together of right now and, and, a, and a type of archival document in that way like if you were to go to a zine library and pull out one thing you would be like oh this is what they were thinking about in 1982 or whatever and hopefully this is how this book will feel coming out in 2020. You know, speaking of legacy, one of my favorite pieces in the book is Mecca Jamila Sullivan's essay on the enduring impact of Entezaki Shange. And it's so interesting that you said, you know, I actually, I'm a person who like will just sometimes just open a book like this. And that is the page it opened to, which I felt was, you know, spirit speaking to me with this particular essay. Um, but at first glance, I think a lot of people might assume Black Futures is millennial or Gen Z focused. Um, and your, and your press materials, say it does not have a retrospective air, but I found a lot of reverence for the ancestors here. Um, how do each of you effectively hold space for the past while encouraging us to craft this Black future? I love that question. I love that too. This is so good. Y'all I mean, good. honestly, like, <laughs> we wanted to have a Black girl chat. Yeah. I mean, work. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think in the least... I mean, I think that the question is such a beautiful one, but I think in the most macro sense, when I think of especially collectors and gatherers and oral historians and anthology builders of the past, the reverence quality and the importance and the weight that I feel when I look at Tony Cade Bambara's Black Woman or other anthologies that that we have access to, I'm like, wow all of these people, or even like Rebecca Carroll's Red Clay, it's like all of these people, you know those names and you know their importance. And I think it's important for us to realize that our contemporaries are of equal value. Like, I think that it's like, oh, you know, now we know June Jordan as June Jordan, but June Jordan was just June Jordan, you know? Like, 
there is something that we're all, tr- that especially Jenna and I were trying to do in this book where it's like, yeah, like these people should be remembered and revered. And, and that agency is something that we all have the opportunity to grasp. You know, everyone in their own respective communities can say, this person is incredible and we should be thinking about them and revering them and looking at their work with the utmost respect and love and care and doing everything that we can to make sure that it is remembered. Because I think, yeah, I think we sometimes like dislocate ourselves from that agency and ability to do that work. I think in the process of this book, we've seen so many names that are not necessarily household names, but then became like MacArthur grantees. And all those confirmations are cool and cute, but it's really important, I think, for all of us to to understand that we can do that work and to quote the great Solange Knowles, be the gold that we want to hold. Um, we all have access to that within our toolkit, even if it doesn't end up on the cover of, you know, some major publication. As Maisha noted earlier, we're in a moment of trauma, unprecedented in our lifetimes, which makes the arrival of this book very timely. What do each of you hope readers will take away from this book? And what are your visions of a Black future? I think something that's that's really important to both Kimberly and I, and that we've been talking about the whole time we've been making this book, is how this, you know, one of the reasons we've calling we've been calling it the Black Futures Project and even Black Futures Plurals, because we're not the only people who get to determine what that is, right? That's something we're extremely aware of and extremely self-conscious of and also want other people to feel empowered, you know, with as well. That that there are even instructions in the book for how you can create your own Black futures. You know, you can start thinking about archiving and documenting, even starting with your own life and then starting with Black art and then going from there. And, and I think we hope people will take the book as an opportunity to understand that just how they live their everyday lives is worthy of documentation, is worthy of celebration, is worthy of that archival element to it, right? It's And there's no hierarchy about who belongs in this book. You know, we all do, right? And so I think that's the biggest thing we keep returning to, which is this idea of we're so precious. We're so precious, you know, whether or not you have a published work or art in a gallery, you know, it's it's we just really want people to feel loved and revered and to look at their lives through that same lens. Wouldn't you make a book with her? I mean, honestly. (laughs) Would you say no? I would. (laughs) Right? Um, I love that. I mean, I think the only thing that I would add is, and this is just because my brain is, you know, doing backflips this week. Um, but I think a lot about like the big book of birthdays, you know, like when you're with a ton of people (laughs) and you pull out the big book of birthdays and you're just like, does, you know, this date correlate with who I am and where I'm going, you know, like in the way that and Chani Nicholas is a great friend of ours, but like the ways that we utilize some of these texts and traditions to wayfind and help us define who we are. I hope in some small way that this text can do that. And if, you know, Mecca's essay resonates or Teju Cole's essay resonates or Thomas Locke's work resonates, that that can help each of us in this moment of incredible uncertainty to make some sense of who we are, where we are, or where we might be going, then it will be a great success. 
But I love those like kind of trade books, I guess they might be called, because they are just, it's like an easy way to hop in and hop out. And maybe you, you, you're helped in this journey of understanding in a particular way. And I think that for me is the most profound thing that I think about when I think about futurity is relying and being codependent on others and texts and wisdom and grace and hope in in the understanding that there will always be more to learn and there will always be more things to hold on to and there will always be opportunities for more. And um, I think that, that that audacity, because unfortunately for Black people, it is an audacious proposition. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> that we might... <laughs> I love that you <laughs> that use that word. That we might move yeah. forward. Mm. Um, that for me, I think, is is the thing that I, I hold on to. Well, it was so amazing to have Absolutely. both of you here today for It's Lit. Jenna and Kimberly, like, this was a bomb-ass <laughs> conversation. <laughs> you guys made a bomb-ass book. What a joy. <laughs> Celebrations all around. Oh, thank <laughs> Thanks you for joining us on It's Lit. <laughs> Since It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and you want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Keep spreading the word. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what books are you into these days? I gotta say, I'm not so into books right now. I'm kind of, you know, taking a break. You know, we read a lot for the podcast. I have been uh, kind of curating and, and collating <laughs> the old issues of Essence. I know this sounds really <laughs> nuts. It's Essence's 50, 50th year. And this is uh, something, you know, as a beauty and fashion editor, you know, I feel like this was foundational to my work that I now do at The Root. And so I've just been kind of revisiting some of those and some of the narratives that began this this magazine, kind of like digging through the archives online. So that is what I've been doing. What, what are you reading these days, Danielle? Well, you know, I just got it in the mail, so I guess I have to read it. It's Barack Obama's The Promised Land. Talk about Black futures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to read all about the presidency that uh, was defining in my life in many ways because there had never been a Black president. And it was an incredible experience to see a Black first family in the White House. So I'm, I'm excited to hear it from his point of view. I mean, transformative, I think, for all of us. And I, I got it in the mail, too. So you might compel me to join you in that. All right. Awesome. That's it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you next week. And until then, keep it lit. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.